Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. I like the bells too. If you're a listener now, there are beautiful (laughs) church bells going in the background. NSL Double Talk featuring Ari Mizell and Nick Gray. Their topic today is hacking the system. They cover everything from life, business, sleep, health, and even cocktail party hacks. Ari is a self-described overwhelmologist. He helps entrepreneurs who have opportunity in excess of what their infrastructure can support to optimize, automate, and outsource everything so they can make themselves replaceable and scale their business. The foundation of his business, Less Doing, is built on nine guiding principles described in detail in his new book, The Replaceable Founder. He is a graduate of the Wharton School. Nick Gray is the founder of Museum Hack, a company of actors and educators who give renegade tours at some of the best museums in the world. He doesn't come from an arts background, and he claims to hate museums. His company, Museum Hack, has been featured in publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Newsweek. Nick is a graduate of Wake Forest University. We are so excited to welcome Ari and Nick to NSL Double Talk. Hey, Nick. What's up, Ari? How's it going? Good. It's always good to see you. Thank you. I love to talk to you. (laughs) The thing I like about speaking with you is I always come away with something new, some new idea that can improve my life. Really? Yeah, I feel the same way. You know, I was trying to think of something, actually. How, how long have we known each other? You know? I first heard about you from one of your personal productivity and optimization courses that I think you were teaching, gosh, seven years ago. I, that would have been like nine years ago, actually. Yes. Did, did you come to one? I came to them. I was in the audience. That's funny. I learned so many things that day, by the way. I came away with a laundry list of new things to improve my life. Anything that stuck with you today? Well, you've always been particularly passionate about like inbox zero, filter, sort, get rid of your inbox, don't manage your calendar and your tasks in the inbox. Yeah. And so that's something that absolutely still sticks. Yeah, it's a funny one that people often try to do that. I feel like they use email as a tool that it is not intended for. It's a communication tool. It's not a project management tool. It's not a to-do list. But, And actually, if it is a to-do list, it's a to-do list that other people fill for you, mm-hmm. which is a pretty bad thing. Oh my gosh. My girlfriend has an inbox of 13,000 emails. And the greatest gift that she gave me over the holidays was she said, can you help me with my emails? And I was like, thank you. I have been dying to clean this out. And there's that one script that you have that you can search for all the messages that include the word unsubscribe, things like that. Yeah. And that just cleaned out thousands of emails for her. It was just a big load. Yeah. Typically when we see people search the word unsubscribe, it's like 63% of their emails. I find that actually is an interesting sort of simile for something larger in life, which is the difference between the essential and the optional, Hmm. right? And we need to be able to focus on what's essential, and the optional is there for when we want it, Hmm. but it's not something that's sort of in our face, because we have too many things that are sort of barraging us with information all the time, and if you are barraged with the essential and the optional at the same time, that's when people start feeling overwhelmed. Hmm. So I actually want to talk about your background a little bit. You have tons and tons of friends. You throw great events all the time. You're always learning new things. You're involved in all sorts of different things. So how did you go from selling the company to that? Hmm. Well, born into the lap of luxury. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was born to a lower middle class family. I grew up in the suburbs. My dad was always this mad scientist type guy that was inventing new things. And he made this one thing that was for uh, small jets that was showing them how to fly across the world. And he just had this idea I was working on in the basement. And after I graduated from school, I figured I'd help him out for a few weeks. Um, and it was a great idea. And I got to do things that really helped him. Um, and we grew that into a larger sort of business, started to hire people, grew to 75 people or so. And it made that map that shows you where the plane flies across the world, and it was small jets. We sold that, and then I had moved to New York for the people. I moved here because I'm so excited and inspired by people, and I want to be surrounded by great people. But when I moved here, I had no idea how to meet people. I didn't have a network. I didn't even know if I needed a network. Um, and I guess the one thing I found that really changed everything for me was when I started to host events, specifically um, cocktail parties. I tried everything, by the way. I'd go meet people, I'd go to meetups, I'd go to all these different things. But I started to host events, and then those events kind of turned into my museum tour business that was really fun. Well, and so what's the connection there? Because Museum Hack is an amazing company that you created, and I've gone on the tours myself, and they're awesome. But how did you go from trying to network and make friends to that? Museum Hack, by the way, is a business that I started that does renegade museum tours at some of the best museums around the world, mostly in America, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And what's special, it's a two-hour museum tour, but what's special is that we hire people like stand-up comedians and Broadway actors to lead the tours. Yeah. These incredible, incredible characters who work for me, not for the museum, and tell you all the juicy gossip about that. There was a rap that one of them did that was great. There was a rap about the Jackie O nightlight. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. That's at the Metropolitan Museum yeah. of Art, which I think is the best museum in the whole world. Why? It is what's called an encyclopedic museum. So that's different from like the MoMA, which has a modern art collection. A museum like the Met has an encyclopedic collection of 5,000 years of human history, including 17 curatorial departments, everything from Egyptian artifacts to musical instruments. So it's like there's a little something there for everybody. So, well, so how did you start Museum Hack from trying to have cocktail parties? I started Museum Hack just to get drunk with my friends at the museum. <laughs> um, and that's really what it was. We'd just go fool around at the museum. We'd go have some drinks, and I'd show them my favorite things that I had found at the museum. Never grew up going to museums, didn't really think they were a place for me, until this woman brought me there on a romantic date. And she just helped change for me my thinking of what that space could be. So yeah, I started a business out of it. It's very weird. Entire business started out of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that speaks to efficiency also in general because I, so obviously productivity is my thing. My last company I started it in 24 hours and we grew it to a million dollars in the first year, right? So like there's an efficiency and a productivity aspect to that. So starting a company basically because you went on a date, you know, and jumping from that to starting a company which became very successful and you've sold now, yeah, is a big deal. It is, it is. And it's also a very efficient way to view a museum, by the way. Here, uh, here's <laughs> yeah. my advice. I just was very lucky to do a big feature with the New York Times on my best advice on how to visit a museum. And my number one piece, can I tell you what it is? Of course. It's to walk the whole floor plan as soon as you get there. Oh, I've seen you do a video about this. Yeah, yeah. so if you've never been to the museum before, walk the floor plan. Don't look at any of the art. Familiarize yourself with the physical space because has this ever happened to you? You go to a museum, maybe with your kids, and you get so caught up in the first few exhibits that like you get tired and you miss all the best stuff at the end sometimes. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Okay, so so you got really into museums, you started growing museum hack. Which was the first museum you did it at? 
first museums was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It was start at the top. And did they, were they okay with that? Oh, no. I got in so much trouble. Yeah, what did that look like? Yeah. I think they were just confused more than anything else. They were just like, what is this guy doing? And like, why is he always here with his friends on Friday and Saturday nights? And at times, yeah, it became a little bit of like a cat and mouse game. Like uh, Thomas Crown Affair. Exactly. Exactly. By the way, I know exactly where that is in the Met. They actually have a spot where a gate will drop upon security instant until like lock areas off. Really? Yeah. There's so many like serendipitous aspects to starting companies like that that yeah, you either face possible illegality or just, just crazy odds to, to make things happen. And now you're in uh, museums all over the world. Yeah. 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 We're in museums all around the world. I'm not very good at that grow inside of a business, right? I could hire the first 10, 20, 30, 40, but things got to be real complicated after that, and I kind of knew it was my time to go. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I have my company, Let's Do It, been around for nine years, but I sort of took a sidestep to create the virtual assistant company mm. four, four or five years ago. And uh, once we got to 183 people, you know, in 17 time zones, like it became... You scaled up so fast for your business. Yeah, that was incredible. Thank you. Well, so I built an automated hiring process, right? That was one of the big things is that I, I built this process that was almost completely automated so that we hired 183 people in 16 months wow. with 2% turnover. Wow. But uh, it became a little bit unmanageable because then, it, especially since we were in 17 time zones, so there was always somebody working. Yeah. And what I found was more than any other time in my life, that was when, when people talk about being married to their businesses and the, almost the addiction that comes along with it, that was the experience for me because no matter what time of day it was, I could get on Slack and have a conversation with somebody who was working and had a question and needed me. Hmm. That's great. Well, yeah, it's great except when you have four small kids and a wife that you know, <laughs> needs some attention too. Um, so you did one thing back when I first met you many years ago in that you had a remote service that was answering your emails for you that people would send you that wasn't you. And they used like a script and a template. Because I remember around your Crohn's and other things, you were getting tons of emails. Yes. And the first time I reached out to you, it was like a Thursday night at like 10 p.m. And somebody got back to me that, that, that I later found out wasn't you, but like within like 20 minutes. And it wasn't a perfect answer, but it was good. Yeah, I call that the human autoresponder. Mm-hmm. So there were... I think six or seven responses that I came up with that the person who was responding was allowed to sort of play with. Mm. But the interesting thing there, and as sort of in productivity in general, is that people always think that everything that they do is so unique mm. and nobody else can do it but them. Mm. But if you actually pull back and look at what they're doing, there's usually categories or buckets that all these things fall into. Mm. So yes, I was getting hundreds of emails a day, but six or seven answers would take care of like 90% of them. Hmm. I like that. You have to realize that. What otherwise happens is you have these people who they're stuck inside of it and you can't read the label from inside the jar, basically, right? So Hmm. they're answering these emails, they're dealing with requests, and they never take the moment to stop and think like, well, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's something that I can do to sort of group these conversations together. Hmm. Super helpful. Just helps anybody manage a lot. So your company was remote, was it? It was remote, but so many of us were based in New York City that we'd end up meeting up in cafes or... Yeah, you didn't have an office, right? We didn't have an office, no. And was that a conscious decision? It was a conscious decision, primarily limited by budget. I never wanted to take debt or investment or anything. And so, yeah, we just really, really bootstrapped it. So what were some of the tools that the business had to run on? Of course, we used Google Suite. We would use Chromebooks. I can't think of any like special tool. Because I started the business about seven years ago, the tools have all been changed and updated now. 
Um, but there were many, many systems and processes we used. For example, Bench to do all of our books and accounting, JustWorks to do all of our HR. benefits and human resources. By the way, now is the like best and easiest time to start a business. If you're thinking about starting a business, there are so many tools and resources available that make it easier than ever. I forgot who said this, but there's a great expression, which is, um, don't bother reinventing the wheel because the internet is full of wheels and most of them have APIs. <laughs> That's yeah. good. That's good. That's a little geeky for people listening, but APIs are things that let you connect to other services. It means what? Application program interface? Or sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know better than me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good point, as that it is an easier time than any to start a business, hmm. and quickly, uh, because there's so many things that do already exist that you can connect one thing to another. With the automation platforms like Zapier and IFTTT, you can build a business basically just by attaching one thing that exists to another thing that already exists. Yeah. And that amalgamation, I guess, is something that becomes really unique. Mm-hmm. There's a business that we work with called Contentfly, which hmm. is an outsourced writing service they'll do any kind of writing you want, they'll write blog posts, newsletters, emails. Their entire company runs on like 72 zaps. Like that's the company. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I got a question for you. Yeah, please. What is new in your life as far as like biohacking or kind of personal productivity? You told me once one thing because I have skin issues. I get like dermatitis and things like that. And one time you were going through a thing where you're like, yeah, I don't shower. I shower like once a week. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't so much by choice. That was because of the kids mostly, but uh-huh. yeah, it helps. Yeah. So I used to have eczema when I was younger. Uh-huh. I would be showering like twice a day, like hot, super hot showers, and it turns out that's really not good for you. Yeah, it really inflames the skin. There's a product, and I'm forgetting what it's called. I think it's called skin mud, oh, mother skin or something like that. Mm. And it's a probiotic for your skin, which is the biggest organ in our bodies. There's the whole thing about the biome on top of the skin. There's this whole community of people that no longer use soap or deodorant or things like that. And my experience with it is the first week is very, very hard, right? Your body (laughs) smells and it's weird. And then things just adjust. Your body adjusts to it. And the microbiome is great. Yeah, microbiome is a good thing. There's a few biohacks of recent uh, that are important to me, one of which we're both wearing, which is the Aura Ring, yeah. and which I think is the best tracker on the market. I think honestly. it's the single easiest thing for someone who wants to improve their sleep is to get the Aura Ring. Yeah, it's so detailed in what it provides. Um, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, like if you have the Fitbit or the Apple Watch, is that the pulse strength in the finger is six times stronger than that in the wrist. And what hmm. that means is that there's a lot more data to be had from the finger hmm. than from the wrist. One of the things that it led me to, and this is not so much a biohack, but it is, it's worth mentioning, is that I found out from it that I have sleep apnea. Really? Yeah, so uh, I, I stop breathing 12 times an hour when I'm sleeping. Wow. And my oxygen levels drop to 83%. How did that show up in, in the app? It was showing wake-ups multiple times per hour. Huh. And uh, it was suspicious enough that I went and actually had a real sleep test done. Yeah. So now I have a CPAP machine, which is, you know, I was a little reluctant at the time, but it has completely changed my sleep. Oh my, is it a game changer? It is. It really is. And you know what? It, it's one of those things where you start using it and I can point to this in so many different areas of my life, but you suddenly realize that the way you've been living is not yeah. that great. Yeah. You know? yeah. And you're yeah. not supposed to be tired all the time. Yeah. It's not just the way it is, but it, which is the same thing with work a lot of times. Once you finally get that solution, then you see how, how bad it actually was. Oh, yeah. I'm a conference junkie. The one that I went to had a sleep therapist, very leading one from a very famous university that I won't mention, and they said that almost everybody can benefit from having a CPAP. Even if you don't have sleep apnea, it helps to improve the sleep of almost everybody. And then if you're someone who biohacks and optimizes, think about a CPAP because it will 
make you sleep better. Well, and the thing is, that it, it makes you stop snoring too. Just mm-hmm. because you're snoring doesn't mean you have sleep apnea, but snoring is mm-hmm. unpleasant for everybody, mm-hmm. especially partners. And so I, it, it, it immediately makes you stop snoring. Never said this on public. My girlfriend and I started our relationship by doing a sleep divorce. Have you heard about these? Separate beds. Separate beds. Yeah. Separate rooms. Separate rooms. Separate rooms even. Uh-huh. Because no scientific studies show that sleeping together is better. But what you have to do is you have to pair that sleep divorce with like the cuddling, right? So like before you go to bed, when you wake up in the morning. And so you can't even tell a difference. I guarantee that we sleep it, but it's a very it's a, it's a very controversial topic for an existing no, and I, relationship. No, I, so I, I sort of again unintentionally like because we have four small children, one of us usually ends up in another bed at some point in the night. So I can totally see that, but that's an interesting life hack. Yeah, um, there's, it's funny as a, my background is in real estate, and one of the things that I was starting to see at the sort of high end of the market that a lot of houses would have two master bedrooms. Yes, that was like the new thing. Right. So. Uh, it's really funny. It's very controversial. But studies show that so many people, something like 29% of all people don't say that they sleep in separate beds, but they end up in separate beds. In the morning, they end up because somebody got up, somebody couldn't sleep, something happened, somebody falls asleep on a sofa or something like that. I mean, it's very old-fashioned, too. Sleep yeah. is so trendy right now. Everybody is talking about sleep, and everybody has an opinion on it. Well, so another one that I think helps is, I don't know if you've seen them, we probably have the mats that have the spikes on them. Yes. Yeah, so like, uh, I forget what they call them, they're like acupressure, Uh right? They're a little painful to get used to, but if you lie on one of those for like 15 or 20 minutes before you go to sleep, it massively improves your sleep. Really? Yeah. What does it do biochemically? So in the initial stages, like the initial few minutes, it's very stressful on your body and your Mm. body's like tensing up and you're Mm. like, you don't like that feeling and it's trying to, you know, cortisol and everything's going crazy. And then you settle in. And realize your body basically the I guess parasympathetic nervous system takes over and realizes like oh it's okay you're not going to be impaled by these spikes and mm-hmm. you can sort of let go mm-hmm. and it releases this flood of like all sorts of positive hormones and things and helps you sleep. I've heard about that. I have one. You can buy these on Amazon. They're like very cheap. Very fifteen twenty dollars. I think it's called an acupressure mat. Yeah. What do you do while you're lying on it? You're just reading a book. Yeah. Yeah. Typically. Um, but the other thing that I would do with it is because I have a standing desk is I'll stand on it barefoot. Hmm. While I'm working. Never thought about that. I too have a standing desk. That is a thing I've been using for 10 plus years. It's good. Well, so the standing desk is an interesting one too because so we're talking about inbox zero, right? But I, I'm like desk zero. I'm barely ever at a desk. So mm. for me, like moving around the house or moving around the neighborhood even mm. really helps my productivity. Mm. And I find that people have different places and times when they do different things better and worse. So whether it's writing and creative work or admin work, there are settings in the mm. environment that can really help you do that. Sight, smells, everything. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. I heard of a guy who had to finish his book manuscript and he booked a round trip ticket to Peter Tokyo. Shankman. Peter Shankman did it? Yeah. yeah, so he took a round trip, first class flight to Japan, 16 hours, got there, got off the plane, like showered at the airport and got back on a plane and wrote, came back and he wrote like 30,000 words in the entire trip. Incredible. Yeah, that'll do it. And he talks about having like extreme cases of ADHD. So I guess like that forcing factor, as you said, is really helpful. Yeah, there's no Wi-Fi. It's a very, it's a very stuck place. Yeah. Let's talk about jet lag. Do you have any jet lag tips or hacks that you like? Time shifter, which will tell you when. Time shifter. You've used it then. I've used it. I used it for a trip and I was very impressed by it, by their responsiveness. It gives you a specific schedule of if you're someone who uses caffeine and melatonin of exactly when to indulge in each of those auxiliary sources. That's one, but the other one is from a company called Valky, V-A-L-K-E-E, and it's called the Human Charger. 
with yeah. the lights in the ears. Have you seen that? Yeah, is this earplugs? Yeah, so it's earbuds that instead of sound, they produce this extremely bright light. There's a nerve in our ears that connects to our optic nerve and then to our brain center. And uh, this extremely bright light helps to shift your, your jet lag uh, state, basically. So it would be like exposing yourself to the sun. But yeah. it's really cool. It has an app with it, too. And so you, you not only do it beforehand, the trip, but you do it on the plane. Really? And then afterwards. And it really works. Really? Oh, yeah. I used that once. I spoke at the Fortune Summit in four countries in Europe in three days. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and then came back home and yeah. zero jet lag. Really? It's shocking. I should try that. I've never tried that before, and I do struggle. I know that they say that your exposure to sun and to light is one of the major things. But let me tell you, have you experimented at all with fasting? Yes, I, mean, I do intermittent fasting. But fasting regarding flights, metabolism, and oh, jet lag? Oh, the 24-hour thing? The idea of fasting for a 12- to 16-hour window around your first meal. No. I did this on a flight to Hong Kong recently, and I think it helped me. I've tried it on other flights, and I had mixed results. The idea is that metabolism is highly linked to jet lag. Yeah, that your body's cycles internally telling you when to feed and when to eat are related to your sleep cycles and that you can help accelerate the reset of that by not eating on the flight, for one. And two, by not eating 12 to 16 hours before your first meal in your destination zone. Yeah, so the the version that I know of is that if you go 24 hours without eating, you go into a state of what's called autophagy or autophagy, which is where your cells start to sort of eat the dead ones. Hmm. But basically, your brain at that point says, "All right, all right, I, I don't care about you know jet lag anymore. Just feed me," and mm-hmm. it basically gives up on holding on to the jet lag idea. Really? Yeah. No, really happens, and then you can just sort of reset to whatever you want. Because it's like a survival mechanism that comes into play. There is scientific literature, by the way, for listeners. Read, search for like jet lag metabolism that has been written about this. It's used in Olympic athletes and things like that. But another one that I have, which I think is a weird one, but I think it's important, is grounding. Yes, yes. Well, because it's so easy. First of all, the plane is an enormous source of uh, negative ions and and EMF and everything. But most people, they get off the plane to their destination. They're in shoes, right? They get in the car. They go to the hotel or whatever they do. They don't get a chance to be barefoot on the ground. Mm, mm. So if you can get off the plane and be barefoot on like grass or dirt as quickly as possible, Mm. it it actually helps. I do believe that. I believe there's some... Woo-woo to that, that's actually yeah. very, very real. Another one is cold. Most people sleep in rooms that are just too warm. Hmm. You know, So 68 degrees is like the ideal, which right. is a little too cold, I think, for yeah. me. But we usually get to like 69. Huh. And <laughs> if you think that one degree is like no big deal, uh-huh. it is. Really? I think it is. Okay, rapid round. Let's hit them with some New York City pro tips. I got my list. Okay. I know I didn't prep you. Here's <laughs> some of my favorite things in New York City. Number one, the app exit strategy. Have you used exit yes. strategy? Yeah. The app tells you exactly where to stand for the right subway car to get out right near the stairs. Yeah. And that is a huge efficiency. It has a hilarious quote that was in the New York Times that says, it saves you minutes per day. <laughs> uh, this is another subway one. I don't even use it that much, but I think that Metro card that you can buy that refills automatically. I have it. Yeah, good. <laughs> Well, and have you seen the stations now where you can just tap your phone? Yes. Have you used them? Yeah, yeah, because it's it's free right now. What? Yeah, but well, be, all they're doing is testing the yeah. NFC yeah. thing. So huh. if you tap and go. StubHub has a last-minute spot around 39th and Broadway that you can buy last-minute tickets, and sometimes the scalpers just slash the rates and the prices. And so occasionally I'll just go hang out at the StubHub office, <laughs> 
not knowing what I'm going to see, right? If I have a free night on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night and there's tons of inventory, I've seen Hamilton for a hundred bucks there. Really? Yeah. Now it doesn't always work, right? Occasionally I go home <laughs> because I don't, like I don't end up with Because you don't want to go see Wicked. Right, because I don't want to see Wicked, right? But I've gotten amazed. I saw like Dear Evan Hansen when it was like the original cast and so hot. I got a seat in like third floor of the orchestra for a hundred bucks. Nice. Okay, that's all I got for New York hacks. Okay. I didn't prepare any New York hacks, except I guess favorite pizza. Fair enough. Well, then Grimaldi's, not Grimaldi's, uh, Giuliana's for me, which is right near where I live in Dumbo. Convenient. How do you like Dumbo? I love Dumbo. Um, it's so interesting, actually, to me, because I grew up in Manhattan my whole life. I was in Soho, and I was always such a Brooklyn snob. Mm-hmm. Like It just, to me, seemed like a place where people mm-hmm. who weren't really serious about things lived. Mm-hmm. So now I can't imagine not living in Brooklyn. Cool. Um, and Dumbo's really fascinating, too. New York history is always fascinating to me. The uh, oldest standing office building in the entire city is like three blocks from me in Dumbo. It was an insurance company. It's like from 1845. Hmm. And now it's a Mexican restaurant. Really? Yeah. All right. Cafe uh, Grand Electrica. So you sold the company. Mm. Do you have another one on the horizon? I'm finishing up this book right now about how to host a very efficient two-hour cocktail party. I think that more people should host more events more often. The reality is a lot of people just don't host. You know, what I found is everybody wants a friend who gets their friends together. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, like everybody wants somebody that helps them meet new meet new people and and do cool things. Everybody wants that type of person in your life. And what I found was that in many friend groups and businesses, that role is ripe for the taking. All I have to do is step up and just like host something. That's interesting. And so I've written a formula and I've tested this over the last ten years or so, and I've trained like four dozen people how to do it. It's just like a cocktail party. Host a cocktail party. It's easier than a dinner party. So simple. All you need to do is drinks. Nobody cares what type of drinks. I don't even drink alcohol, so it's like I don't even know how to I'm make either. a cocktail. Yeah, I like having a formula for uh, for a casual get together. Yeah, <laughs> it's a form, and it's two hours. That's all. Well, and I mean, I've been to them obviously a few times, and you really do keep people on the clock, and it works extremely well. I mean, so, what's your favorite icebreaker? My favorite icebreaker. It's a very boring one. So what's your favorite thing to have for breakfast? But wait, I'll tell you why that's a good one. <laughs> because it doesn't require. Like emotional vulnerability. It doesn't require you to think. What's a bad icebreaker? What's your favorite book? That's a terrible uh, icebreaker. Yeah. Because it's subjective. It's specific. It requires judgment. Other people will judge you based on what you say. My, what's your favorite thing to have for breakfast? Everybody knows what that is. What's yours? My favorite thing to have for breakfast, scrambled eggs. I use coconut oil. And then I do spinach, too. But, but lately, I've just been doing fruit before noon. My favorite is this like 3,000 calorie smoothie that I make. Really? Yeah. Sounds great. I would eat that. All right, but here's the deal with icebreakers. Okay, my favorite one is what was your first job? I like, that's a great one. Because you know how many people, it's like it was a paper, it was a paper route. Like so many people connect on that level. They're guaranteed you have a room of 10 people, four or five people had the exact same first job. I love that one. Yeah. I love that one. About the great thing about icebreakers. I like the one you use, by the way, because almost everybody has it. You could slightly modify it by saying, what's the first job you had that you got paid money for? Because some people are like, oh, does babysitting count? That's not a job, right? But that's a common one. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing with icebreakers. You got to stack them in various levels of like vulnerability and expression. Because if you have a group of people that have never met each other before, then I'm not going to be vulnerable. So that's why the breakfast icebreaker works to just practice the mechanics. But you can't just ask the breakfast icebreaker. You also have to ask, what's your name? What do you do for work? If you don't want to talk about work, you know, what's something that you're passionate about, right? Like a charity or something you're involved with. And then 
then do the icebreaker, which could be the breakfast one. And so I do these two or three times throughout the night, and you stack them in increasing levels of vulnerability. The first one could be the breakfast one, and the second one could be like, what's the best piece of media that you consumed lately? Right? It could be a book that you read, a Netflix show that you watched, a, movie, a podcast right? that you listened to, such as this one. What's the best piece? Right, And people love to share and love to hear from cool people, too, about something they read or were inspired by. What are some of the big mistakes people make when they plan a cocktail party? Uh, great question. Um, oh, God, I hate to say this one because it's, people are going to hate me for it, but not using name tags. Very controversial, right? People are listening to this. They're like, I'm not going to trust this guy. He wants me to have name tags at home. Here's the thing. Name tags, you may know everybody's name. Of course you do. It's your party. You know who doesn't know everybody's name? Everybody else. Is everybody else. And they're coming to your party to meet your friends, right? Name tags symbolize that this is an open environment where it's okay to meet people, that there's no clicks. The name tags symbolize that this is a safe space to go up and strike up a new conversation. And so it's, it's one of the biggest things that I have the most resistance against, and yet it's one of the number one things that I hear from new hosts. They say, I can't believe how helpful that was. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like people would feel like that's too rigid or too, or too like stiff to I do know. something like that. I know, nobody's going to listen to me now. <laughs> now, you've had hundreds, maybe thousands of people at cocktail parties mm. uh, at your apartment. Do you curate those lists ever when you're inviting people or you just invite everybody? For a new host, I think it's generally the more the merrier. As you develop your hosting skills, you can definitely start to curate the list. And you know the biggest problem when you start to host more and more and you start to curate your list, somebody asks if they can bring their partner. Oh my gosh, can I bring my girlfriend too? And And you say no? You gotta say no. But that's only when you're curating, right? If you're curating the list, if you're trying to have a specific conversation about business or health or wellness or whatever, and you're trying to curate the list, you can't let people bring guests. Because then they'll just talk to that person, right? That's one of the biggest reasons. If you let somebody bring their friend or their partner to a party, they use it as a conversational crutch. And they don't let themselves go out and, and get a little anxious and go have a new conversation, right? Uh, a- that's for advanced hosts, though. <laughs> Black belt hosts. Black belt hosts, yeah. How's it been writing the book? Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. I'm not a writer. I I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Yeah, it's interesting. I have never, in the traditional sense, written any of the nine books that I've published, Mm. right? Most of them have been me talking and figuring out a way to to get someone else to do them. Mm. So how far through it are you? I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm going to the point now where I'm like, I'm beta testing it, having people reading it. I'm learning a lot. And so that's interesting. Well, it's interesting to me for with all the outsourcing that I've done, the only time I've ever had a really bad experience was mm. with getting someone to write the book. Oh yeah. Because the first time I did it with Less Doing More Living, which was my first published book, the way I did it was I sent them like seven blog posts and three podcasts and mm. like and I was like, you know, make something out of this basically. Mm. And what they came back with was terrible. It was just like a rewrite of what I had done. The second time I took it a little bit further and I was like, okay, I'll write out some notes and I'll put this all together. And the same kind of thing. It was like a terrible, terrible experience. So the third time, finally, what I did was I taught one of the classes, like the ones that you went to, mm. two and a half hours, and I videotaped it. And I gave just that one piece of content, two and a half hours, to the ghostwriter, mm. a, new, a new ghostwriter at that mm. point. And she wrote the book. And that was the book that pretty much without edit got published by Penguin. Awesome. Yeah. Great. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. Quick question. What's your brief, very quick 
pieces of advice for somebody who wants to work with a virtual assistant but has never done so before? Newbie sort of tips, 40 seconds or less. I wish everybody would ask that, honestly. Yeah. So the, the first thing is to don't do it first. Okay. Uh, you need to that Working with a virtual assistant has to be like the last step after you've already figured out how to do the thing that you want them to do. Mm. And this, this is the big one, is that if you are getting a result, but it's ugly and it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of work, but you're getting the result, that's great because now we can sort of optimize, we can automate, and we can outsource that. But what you usually get is somebody who's not getting the result and now they want someone else to do the thing that they can't do themselves. Hmm. That's usually where people fail. Hmm. The other thing is that we're really bad at conveying what success looks like. So you need to be super clear about what you actually need that person to do. And you can't do that unless you actually look at what the task is itself. Hmm. So that's the first thing is I would just tell people don't have this sort of knee-jerk reaction like, oh, I don't like doing this thing, I'm going to hire somebody else to do it for me. Yeah. Because what you're doing is you're taking an inefficient, uh, badly explained problem, you're giving it to somebody else who has less context, less information than you do, yeah. and expecting a better result than you were going to achieve yourself. Yeah. Can't happen. No, it's, it's way too hard. As always, it's great seeing you, Nick, and it's great talking to you. I always learn something from you. Great to see you, too. I always learn a lot from you, too. Thanks. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.